0: Our scripture this morning is found in Matthew chapter 15 as you turn there. um, I'll give you an update. Last Sunday, I declared that I was going to lose 10 pounds before uh, Father's Day of January. If y'all remember, I gave myself, I I created a new holiday in January last, last week. Uh, but by January, I looked it up, it's actually June 17th is when Father's Day is. So I have an accountability partner, uh, share my, um, my diet with every day at the end of the day. Sometimes probably on the other end there's an exasperated sigh that says uh, um, two chili dogs were probably not a good idea. But tomorrow is uh, the first weigh-in, so you pray that I don't blow it this afternoon on Mother's Day, Um, our subject this morning, a mother who believed Jesus, Matthew chapter 15, 21 through 28, Um, there are a lot of dividing lines in our lives, a lot of markers in our lives where things get divided from where we were before that moment, I can remember one of those dividing lines for me being when I uh, went to get my driver's license for the first time. I got it on the second try. The first time um, that three-point turn or something got me. Uh, So I went back. I remember going back that second time. I remember it being a dividing line in my life. I didn't feel like I was a boy anymore, but I wasn't quite yet a man. Um, And my dad reminded me every time I left the house that I wasn't quite yet a man. Graduations are dividing lines in our lives. Uh, we'll have a lot of our students, we've, we've had a lot of our college students who graduated in the last few weeks, and we'll have high school students who will graduate. And then there's marriage and children that are dividing lines in our lives. When we get married, and um, that separates us from where we were before in our lives. And then children come along, and that further um, puts us in a different place in our lives. Some of you know the, the blessedness of retirement, and that was uh, a dividing line in your life that you worked for and you worked hard to get to, and you finally got there and you retired and you realized that your children now had children and you went back to work raising their children. So, um, but the Bible is also filled with a lot of dividing lines. The Bible has a lot of places where things change. If you begin in the book of Genesis, and you look there beginning, uh, there's a dividing line beginning in Gen- at the end of Genesis chapter 11. There's a division there as God begins to do something new there in Genesis chapter 12 as he calls Abraham out, and it begins to become about a family that will grow into a nation that will reveal a Savior. There's a dividing line of Exodus where the children of Israel get, leave Egypt and go and out into um, the wilderness to begin their journey to the promised land. And then there's the book of Joshua in the Old Testament, where they cross the Jordan River, and they go into the promised land. In the New Testament, in the book of Acts, I think there's three great dividing lines there. In Acts chapter 2, where the Holy Spirit, the promise of the Holy Spirit is given. And then in Acts chapter 7, Uh, and 8 there to the end of 7 and the beginning of 8 as the church begins to become persecuted, but the church begins to spread into the regions in the surrounding area. And then in in chapter number 13 of Acts, there's a shift from the focus there being about the apostle Peter to it becoming about the apostle to the Gentiles, the apostle Paul. So we see a lot of great dividing lines and markers in the Bible. And this morning in our text, is one of those great dividing lines. Read these uh, verses with me. Verses 21 through 28 says this And Jesus went away from there and withdrew to the district of Tyre and, and Sidon. And behold, a Canaanite woman from that region came out and was crying Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. Then Jesus answered her, O woman, great is your faith. Be it done for you as you desire. And her daughter was healed instantly. Now up until this point in Matthew, Jesus had a special message for one particular group of people. Jesus had a message saying to repent and behold that the kingdom of God was at hand. That he was there, he was the Messiah who they had been looking for and longing for. And so his message to them was specifically to them, the Jewish people. And when they, um, he reminded them that when the world had turned on God, he chose Abraham to father of a nation to reveal the Savior. And Jesus comes specifically to these people at this time, and they reject him. And now he begins to take his message to the whole world. Now, in this, what we're reading here, there are three distinct things that we'll look at. Jesus teaches this mother a great lesson about faith. And then he teaches the disciple a couple of great lessons, one on faith and the other one on in, in the inclusion of the gospel. And this morning, if we're listening, he'll teach us some of the same things that he taught them. So we look and we get in verse number 21 and we see a woman, a mother who has great troubles. Jesus has traveled. He has left it. There's this dividing mark here in chapter 15. He's had an argument there with some of the religious leaders, the Pharisees. They, he has offended them and they have offended him. And so there's a dividing point there. And Jesus leaves. He, is, he needs to go to another place and to rest. And so he goes north of Israel And what we would say now is modern day Lebanon is where he is in this particular time. And he meets this woman here who has a whole lot of troubles. There's a lot of troubled mothers in the world. I would say that this is probably the most perilous time uh, that there has ever been to raise children. This is a very perilous time. Some of you are raising children. Some of you are involved in the raising of your grandchildren or great-grandchildren. And you know and understand that these are very perilous times when it comes to raising children. This world is a hateful world. It's filled with uh, the evil of this world. And it is a perilous time to raise children. Uh, This mother knows and understands some of these things. Now let's look at some of the things that stick out about this woman here. First of all, she was a Canaanite. She was a Syro-Phoenician. First, she's a Gentile. She's not a Jew. Jesus has gone into Gentile territory, and he is there, and he's in the minority. And he goes here into a place. She's not only a Gentile, but she's an idol worshiper. She worships a lot of different idols. If you're familiar with the Old Testament, King Ahab's wife, Jezebel. When you hear the word Jezebel, what do you think of? You think of an immoral, evil woman. Jezebel is from this place where Jesus is right here at this moment. And now this we understand that this evil that was there with Jezebel has been steeped there for generations. And here's, an, here's another thing that we notice here. The apostles don't really want to be here. The apostles don't want to go into this territory where they have gone into The apostles, the twelve who were following with Jesus, have great racial prejudice against the people that they are going into where Jesus has taken them. They have been taught from the time that they went into the temple that these people are pagan, that these people are not to be dealt with, that these people are outside of their race and outside of the blessings of God. And they have great prejudice toward these people And so now, as a result of that, the apostles really don't want to be here, and we'll see more about that here in just a few minutes. Um, By culture and language, this woman is also Greek. She'd been Hellenized. When the Greeks went into a territory and they overtook that territory, not only did they force everyone there to learn the Greek language, but they also forced everyone there to take on the customs of the Greek people. and to to become Greek. They had to assimilate into being a Greek. So she was not only taught Greek language, but she was taught Greek culture, and here's what she thinks. The people that are around her think that these Jews shouldn't be where they are. They have prejudice uh, toward them because they've been taught through the Greek culture to look down on the Jewish people. So we see the conflict there already beginning in this story. And by religion, up until this point, she's a pagan. That means that she worships outside of Jehovah God. She doesn't worship the true creator God. She worships all kind of other gods. But guess what? This day, there's a great change in her life. This day, she encounters Jesus Christ, and there is an incredible change in her life. Let me say this very emphatically. You cannot have a personal encounter with Jesus Christ and be the same afterwards. There's no way for you to have a personal, to say that you've had a personal encounter with Jesus and still be the same that you were before. Now her greatest problem has to do with her daughter, her child. She had other problems in her life, but those problems seem small right now at this moment. There's a high fever. There's anxious hours in crisis. To the normal parent, all of our problems seem small when our children are at stake. I can remember when, when my boys were very small, and it would, I would just be a nervous wreck when they were sick, especially when they were at that age where they couldn't tell me what was really wrong. Grayson would get fever sometimes as high as 105, and you'd go to the emergency room there with that baby in your hand, and you'd hand them off and say, you know, it was like, fix them. I don't know what to do anymore. There's an anxiousness and an anxiety about us when our children are sick. And some of you have told me that it gets even worse when you've got grandchildren and they're sick. um, That it's even more. So she is, everything in her life is small compared to what's going on. The scriptures give us greater description here and tell us that her daughter is being troubled by a demon. She's not just sick, but she's being oppressed by a demon. Now... Here's the thing, the most distressing of every parental problem that is in this world today is the devil's attack on our children. Yeah, we get upset when our children are sick, or we get upset when our children are hurt, but right now, there's a great assault on our children through Satan. There's been, for the last couple of generations, a great assault on the family in America. Over the course of the past couple couple of generations, we have witnessed the fatherlessness of America. We've witnessed where the father uh, is not so much the head of the household anymore. In, in, in a, major, a lot of households, there's, there's not a father there. There's been a great attack by Satan on the structure of the family. We, we see that the family doesn't look like it did a couple of generations ago. And what it has led to now is the assault on our children because, I believe, because of the lack of male uh, males being involved in our children's lives, I see now where we are at this point to where we have a crisis with how many how many genders there are. I, that, uh, did, did you ever think you would live to see a point to where we would be in society to where we would have more than two choices for what our children are? It's amazing to me how the devil has taken and and tore apart the tore apart the fabric and structure of the family, and now we're at a place now to where we're being told that when children are born, we should give them a, a few years to decide whether or not they're a boy or a girl. You with me? We're living. We are real close to being in Solomon Gomorrah. Amen. You may not you may not be paying attention, but we are real close. When we are told that there are, that 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 the, that a child has the, the the ability to choose the opposite sex of what they are when they're born, we, we're living in perilous times. And we see Satan's greatest attack and his greatest assault is on our family. When the Boy Scouts can't be Boy Scouts anymore, they just have to be Scouts. That's the world we're living in now. And, and we see that it, there is a continued breakdown of the family and a continued assault on it. And here's why we see the importance of praying for protection from Satan's attacks on family members. If you have time later, go to Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 12 says, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. We're not wrestling with the government. We're not wrestling with um, universities and what they're teaching. What we're wrestling with are principalities and powers that are controlled by Satan that are controlling people here and we need to be more worried about praying about the eternal instead of the temporal. We need to be praying for our kids other than our great questions as parents now are will they fit in or will they be good at this sport or will they be good at this instrument or or, or will they do this or that. Here's the real question we need to be asking and praying about is will they be swallowed up by this evil world that blatantly hates God and is opposed to everything That he stands for. So we see this mother with great troubles. And we know that there are great troubles in this world that we live in. But here we see a mother of great prayer. How many of you are here this morning? You think you're here because of a mother of great prayer? I can raise my hand and say I'm here this morning because of of a mother of great prayer. My father prayed a lot for me also. But my mother was a prayer warrior for me. There were times when I would come in late at night and my mother would be still up and I know that she'd been praying for me to come home safely. She's a mother of great prayer. Now Jesus is going into this area here and his fame had preceded him. There's already people following him. This woman comes to Jesus with her problem. We're blessed to know where to take our problems. Now a lot of times we'll take our problems to our friends or our family. And that's wonderful. We should. We should have people that are encouraging us. But only after we've first taken our problems to Jesus and then we go to other places. We're blessed to know where to take our problems first. Hebrews 4 and 16 says this, Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. We know that we have the confidence that we can go to God at any moment and any time with our needs. And he's there to give us mercy and grace when we need it. She believed everything about Jesus. Now Jesus had been rejected by the people, the very people who should have recognized him and known him. He had been rejected by them because his teachings offended them. Now this woman comes out and she believes everything That they didn't believe. She believed. She called him the son of David. Meaning that she knew that he was the Messiah. Who had been prophesied about. She called him Lord. Which we know means that she believed. That Jesus Christ was God in the flesh. She believed in his power. To answer her request. Maybe she had heard it mentioned. That he had said in Matthew 7. Asking it will be given to you. Seek and you will find Knock and it will be open to you. She believed that Jesus Christ was interested in her life and that he wanted to be an answer to her life. Jesus is interested in every phase of our lives. The writer of Hebrews says that we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who was tempted in every way that we are, yet without sin. Jesus Christ can sympathize this morning with your weakness. Jesus can sympathize with the fact that you may be in a spot right now where you feel alone and left out. Jesus Christ can sympathize with that. You may be physically ill. You may be hurting. You may be desperate in a situation. The Bible tells us that Jesus is able to sympathize with us because he walked this earth and he knows everything that we've ever been through. Now, there's some problems that confront her here. What is is Jesus' first response to her? As she's crying out and following him and begging him to heal her daughter, what is Jesus' first response? He doesn't say anything. It's just complete silence. Jesus doesn't say a word. What about those lonely hours? when we feel our prayers are unheard? What about when we know that there are dozens and dozens of people who are praying for us, and yet we still seem far removed from the presence of God? See, this was a test of the woman's faith here. When we are waiting, it's his invitation to us to draw closer. Sometimes we have this concept in our mind, that I'm going to pray about this matter, and tomorrow this matter is going to be the way that I want it, how I want it, wrapped up in a neat box that Jesus is going to sit on my front doorstep and everything is going to be wonderful. Sometimes we pray with that concept in mind. And what does what does God say? He just kind of lets us sit there and think that that's how it's going to happen. And it doesn't happen that way the next the next day or the day after that or the week after that or sometimes the month after that. And what is God doing with us during that time? He's growing and proving our faith. And he's given us an invitation to continue to pray and draw closer to him. Now, what do the disciples want to do? The disciples always have one answer for every problem situation. Whether it's a group of people or whether it's one individual person, the disciples always have this one answer. Send them away. Get them out of our hair. We don't want to deal with this right now. Send this, send this woman away. In just a few, in the next story here, after Jesus heals many, he feeds the 4,000. If you look in the account of that in Mark, in the Mark's gospel, the disciples t- tell Jesus about this 4,000 people, send them away. That's their answer. Now, here's what the apostles see. The apostles see Jesus being silent and they are sure that with his silence he is approving their rejection of the woman and he is confirming their prejudices. But what's Jesus going to do? Is Jesus going to send her away? Has Jesus Christ ever sent you away in any situation? Never. Her persistence now, she, she has great discouragement, but she's still persistent. She's worshiping. She continues to worship. She's in the midst of great sorrow. She's in the midst of great distress. She's in the midst of great trouble. But yet, in the midst of all that, she still calls Jesus Lord, and she bows before him and worships him. In the midst of all her suffering and sorrow, she's still worshiping. Look at her simple prayer there. All she, all she asks for is for her daughter to be healed. She doesn't have time for eloquent words. She doesn't have time for great explanation. She simply needs her daughter to be healed. Now look at the Lord's real strange statement here in verse number 24. It says, He answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. In other words, I was sent for this group of people, the Jews, the lost sheep of Israel. And I am not if if I give you this blessing, then I'm going against what what we've been doing all this time. All this time up in in this part of my ministry, I've been healing Jews and I've been working and ministering to the Jewish people. And now, all of a sudden, you're wanting me to change course and change direction. But he's testing her faith. Because here's what, here's what matters. She wanted what the house of Israel had rejected. She wanted a relationship with Jesus. She wanted him to be her Lord. She was begging him not only to heal her daughter, but to be her Lord. Don't ever reject the blessings that God has for you. The worst thing as a Christian is to know that God has something for you to do, a desire that he's placed in your heart, and you wait around and wait around, and you don't do what it is that God has for you to do. And then later on, you see someone else who God chose to give that blessing to and give the, or give that miracle to. That's an awful place to be, and she didn't want to be there. Now look at how he describes. She, she came and knelt before him saying, Lord help me. Now, now listen at this description. This would have offended most people and most people would have left because he says this, it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. It's not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Now, The 12 men with Jesus see this woman as having no more worth than a dog that would be roaming the street. The 12 men who are with Jesus see this woman of having no value at all. They have been taught that a woman shouldn't even come and approach a teacher or a rabbi in public, much less a foreign woman. So everything that this woman has done now up to this point has offended the 12 men with Jesus. And now Jesus basically calls her, says to her, I can't give you, I can't give this blessing to the dogs. And don't you know that at that moment, Simon Peter, and Andrew and James and John, they poke their chest up all of a sudden and say, All right, finally, Jesus is telling this woman what we want Jesus to tell this woman that she's not worthy. How many of us are like that in our own spiritual lives? We want Jesus to say, no, no, no. We want Jesus to to tell other people, no, these blessings are just for us and not for others. Now, Jesus is describing a scenario here where when these people ate at their tables, underneath their tables the puppies would get underneath the tables and they would wait on the scraps to fall off the table so that they could get something to fill their bellies with. Now, we've rescued a puppy. Not just any puppy, but a pit bull puppy. And here's the thing that I know. While I'm eating, that puppy that already weighs 70 pounds is watching every single bite I take, and he's waiting on something to fall on the floor or something to fall outside where I'm eating so that he can get the scrap. And sometimes I'm, I'm eating and I'm watching him thinking, I'm, I'm a little bit afraid of you. All, all day long you're licking me and, and rubbing up against me and, and you want to lay right beside me and be petted. But when I'm eating, you're looking at me like, I want what you got, Buster. And I want it bad. This woman is saying I'm here under the table Jesus. I know who you are. I know who you came for. I know that you didn't that your ministry up to this point has not been for me, but I am willing to be as humble as one of those dogs under the table and I'm willing to admit that I have no worth. I'm willing to admit that I'm broken. I'm willing to admit that I'm, I'm ashamed of who I am. I'm willing to sit under your table, Jesus, and wait for the scraps to fall to me. How, how much different would Christianity in the Western world look if we had the attitude of this woman that we had no clue that we had any self-worth, that we had no clue that we had any ability or any talent, that we were humbly just sitting under the table, just willing to take the scraps that fall off the table of Jesus. Jesus looks at this situation, and when this doesn't offend the woman, she says this, Yes, Lord, yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. One more time here. She acknowledges Jesus as God. She acknowledges that He is the Master. And so look at this Lord of great promise here. Let's read verse 28 together. It says, Then Jesus answered her, O woman, great is your faith. Be it done for you as you desire. And her daughter was healed instantly. If you are here this morning and you're a woman... There are no six words that could be any more important to you than these six words than to hear Jesus say, O woman, great is your faith. It would be better to hear than than, than great is your beauty or great is your professional success or great is your influence because this woman had a faith that pleased the Lord. Her daughter was made whole At that very moment, she was physically healed at that very moment. But what was even more important was, was this woman's faith had caused her to be spiritually healed. And at this moment, as Jesus performs this miracle for this woman, there's a great dividing line now that happens here in Matthew chapter 15. What Jesus is saying now to his apostles, those 12 men who are with him, Jesus is turning and looking at them now, and he's saying to them, this gospel must be preached to all the nations, to everyone. Because you see, when God chose Abraham there in Genesis chapter 12, and he told him, that he was going to bless him and that his numbers were going to be more than the stars or the sands on the sea. And as he sent Moses out with his children of Israel into the wilderness, and then as Joshua took them over the uh, the Jordan River and they crossed over and they began to possess a land that wasn't theirs and to begin to take all of everything there that wasn't theirs God was saying, I am placing you here in this place because I want every nation around you to see how I am blessing you and I want them to be, uh, to be longing to be a part of what I'm doing for you. I want your lives to be set apart. I want you to live differently and I want to bless you openly so that the nations around you will long to have a relationship with me. And now Jesus is saying to his apostles, this is our opportunity. Now, I didn't plan to do this, but read the next section of verses 29 through 31. Jesus went on from there and walked beside the Sea of Galilee. And he went up on the mountain and sat down there. And great crowds came to him, bringing with them the lame, the blind, the crippled, the mute, and many others. And they put... Them at his feet, and he healed them so that the crowd wondered when they saw the mute speaking, the crippled, healthy, the lame walking, and the blind seeing. Now, all of a sudden, these are not Jewish people in 29 through 31, these are Gentile people. Jesus has left and went north of Israel, and now he is taking the message that God sent with him, he's taking it out into another place, and the people are astounded by what they see. And read this last verse here. It says, "And they glorified the God of Israel. They glorified the God of Israel. Thousands of years earlier, four thousand years earlier, God had set this nation of Israel in the middle of Canaan, and He had put them in a land that was flowing with milk and honey, and He had told them that you are going to you your your responsibility." is to live the way that I've told you to live, receive my blessings, and be a blessing to everyone around you. That was pretty easy, wasn't it? You can read through the book of Leviticus, and and it'll confound you sometimes, but just remember, all he was simply telling them was, be right here, do what I say, let other people see me bless you, and then you bless other people and make them want to be a part of what we are. It's a simple message. And it's the message that still rings true in our ears today. And here's our Monday morning moment. We are to proclaim the message that Jesus Christ came to be the Savior for all people, regardless of race, color, or creed. We are to proclaim the message that Jesus Christ came to be the Savior for all people, regardless of race, color, or our creed. This is a big deal in Southern Baptist life right now. Next month there'll be a lot of talk about this very thing in our in our convention. There's already a lot of heated debate. But the simple message comes down to this. And some of our some of our leadership is finally stepping up and saying, look, it comes back to this. It comes back to John 3:16. The simple message there that says For God so loved the world. And when it says he loved the world, it means that he has no prejudices. Whether you're white, black, brown, red, yellow, it doesn't matter. And what the Bible says there, for God so loved the world, it says he has no prejudices. This is another great debate in our convention next month is, did he elect some people and leave some people out? Or are we all included? I'll get to that in a minute. For God so loved the world that he gave, he gave. It's a free gift. There's no strings attached. I gave my mother her Mother's Day gift this morning. Later on this afternoon, I'm not going to call her back and say, Hey, Mom, I really could use that. Um, I gave that to you. I gave it to you in front of Tasha because I wanted Tasha to be impressed with me giving you your Mother's Day gift. But if you could, I'm going to run by your house and get it back from you. God didn't give us anything with strings attached. Grace doesn't have strings attached to it. You hear me? Grace doesn't have strings attached to it. It's a free gift that he gave. He says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son. He gave Jesus. Jesus, God the son who came and who lived a perfect sinless life. Born of a virgin. Lived a perfect sinless life. Went to a cross at Calvary and took your place on that cross because you couldn't accomplish what He had to accomplish there for the forgiveness of your sins. He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever. Whosoever. That one simple word could solve a whole lot of problems in our world right now. You know what whosoever means? It means all. It means everybody. All in the Greek means all. All. It doesn't leave anybody out that whosoever believeth in him would not perish. Perish in this in this particular verse here means that they would be separated from God for eternity in a place called hell because they chose to die in their sins. We talked about this Wednesday evening in Wednesday evening Bible study, which meets at 6 o'clock right here if you'd like to be. There's plenty of seats. All right? We talked about this Wednesday evening. If someone goes to hell, if someone you know, a friend or a family member, chooses to go to hell, let them first have had to have stepped over you to get there with you sharing the gospel with them. And I want you to pray for me. There's a a man came to me at the end of of, of the Bible study the other night, and he told me about a man that he's witnessing to and that he's sharing the gospel with. And I want you to pray for him because... This man's concept is this, is that I've lived a decent life. I've I've not done, I've I've treated people fair in business. I've lived a decent life. God won't send me to hell. That's not what the Bible says. And my friend is is, going to use scripture to try to tell him that. God has placed a couple of people on my heart and he's told me, you keep running into these people for a reason. There's a reason that you run into this man in the grocery store two or three times a week. It's not to talk about what what, uh, brand of milk you're buying, you need to share the gospel with him because he's lost. Whosoever, it's everyone. We don't want them to perish and to be separated in hell, but that they would have what? Eternal life. Eternal life. I want to tell you something. There is nothing in this world that is worth hanging on to or holding on to that would rob you of eternal life. I stood in churches many Mother's Day mornings. I thought that my gift to my mother when I was when I was lost and I was a sinner, I thought, well, my gift, one of my gifts to my mother would be I'll go to church with her and that'll satisfy her. She maybe she won't ask me again until next Easter. So I would go to Mother's Day. Sunday mornings and I would hear a gospel presentation I would hear a man stand behind a pulpit and share the gospel and share it in a strong way and tell me that there was an opportunity here for me to know that I could have eternal life and at the end of that life I wouldn't have to perish and be separated from God for eternity in hell and I would hold on to a pew and And I would grip that pew, and I would think about, well, I would have to give this up. And I'd have to give this person up. And I'd have to give this up. And I couldn't go there. And I couldn't do this. And I couldn't do that. And I would sit there, and I'd let the devil pour all that into my head until I would tune out what was going on and think about what I was going to do that afternoon. I want to tell you something. There's not one thing that I stood there during that time and thought that was so much better than Jesus. I wouldn't, go, I wouldn't want to go back to any of those things now. I don't want to be a part of those. The moment that I gave my life to Jesus, he changed those desires. He began to put a desire in my heart to be in church, to be around God's people, to, to do the things that God's people were doing, and to live my life in a way That was different than what I was living before. I didn't understand grace as much then as I understand it now, but grace is the most wonderful thing because it covered my sins, past, present, and future. And I was able to lie down at night without my conscience keeping me awake because I knew that I was within, I was in right standing with God. And I knew that the prayers that my mother had prayed. And the prayers that she had dozens of other people praying had been answered because I had a relationship with Jesus Christ. I don't want you to leave this facility this morning without knowing for certain that you have a relationship with Jesus Christ, that you have been forgiven of your sins, that you have repented of those sins, which means that you don't want to go back to those sins and you want to go in a different direction than where you're headed. And that you truly want to live for Jesus and that you'd be willing to go and be baptized to let everyone know that you're a Christian. Without a lot of um, pomp and circumstance, there's nothing better than a short sermon, but especially on Mother's Day. But I will not leave here this morning until I know that the Holy Spirit has had an opportunity to speak and to deal with your heart this morning. I don't want to know about where you're a member of a church. I don't want to know about where you were christened or where you were confirmed or any of that. I want to know where you gave your heart and life to Jesus Christ and said, You are my Lord and, and Savior, and I repent of my sins, and I want to be forgiven. That's what matters this morning. Do you have that in your life? As Jubal comes to lead us during this time of invitation, worship, and reflection, if you want to know for certain, come this morning, and I will share with you from Scripture how to know that you can leave here this morning with eternal life and not have to worry about being separated from God for eternity in a place called hell where you will never have hope again in your existence for eternity this morning I know already that the Holy Spirit is speaking to hearts some of you are here for Mother's Day Uh, you came to this place it's a divine appointment for you to be here and I want every Christian in this room to be praying for those who are here who don't know Christ as their Savior would you stand father I pray that you have your will and your way I pray that no one would stubbornly hold on to their pride or their prejudice or anything else that that they have in their life that's holding them away from a relationship with Jesus Christ. I pray this morning that if there's someone here who needs to know Christ as their Savior, that they would be bold enough to step from where they are and to walk here and to say, Michael, would you tell me how I can be forgiven of my sins and know that I have eternal life? There's some here this morning who've done that and they've not followed through with baptism or membership or whatever it is they need to do, Father. I pray that you would strongly pull them in that direction. I ask these things in Jesus' most precious name. Amen.